Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. I love to bring you very in-depth guests, and today I certainly have one. Dr. Hassan Tete has really explored very greatly the avenues of patient care and what he calls the human care theory. And we're going to talk about that and its relationship to toxic relationships, so stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. So welcome. This is an exciting edition, as I find all of them to be, because I have someone that I can ask really in-depth questions. So welcome to the program, Dr. Tete. Thank you, Roberta, for the invitation and such a pleasure to be here with your audience and community. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And I want everyone to know why I'm so excited about him. So Dr. Hassan Tete is a U.S. Navy captain. Thank you for your service. And associate professor of surgery at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and adjunct faculty at Howard University College of Medicine. He is a specialized thoracic adapted recovery team member in Washington, D.C., and his research in thoracic transplantation aims to expand heart and lung recovery and save lives. All for that, absolutely. He's also the founder of the Tete Consulting Group, creator of the Art of Human Care. We're going to be talking about his absolutely beautiful book, The Art of Human Care. It's a hardcover book in this day of not getting very many of those. And just look at the illustrations that we have here. Oh, how do I get that on the camera? There we go. (laughs) Absolutely beautiful. We're going to talk about his book. And I wouldn't just start with your personal experience. I know that early in your young adult life, you had an experience that was pretty scary, and it changed things for you. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely, Roberta. So like many young uh, folks, (laughs) Oh, like I was uh, pretty invincible and, uh, you know, didn't think about uh, sickness, illness or anything like that. But uh, just as I was a teenager, I guess, just kind of transitioning from late teenage years to early 20s, I was a junior in college and uh, had the great opportunity to travel to Johns Hopkins of all places for an mm-hmm. early admission look at the medical school program, basically an invitation to become a medical student at Johns Hopkins in my junior year. I was super excited. I flew down there, had what I thought was the best interview of my life and knew for sure that they could not deny me a position at <laughs> such, a, such a prestigious place. Uh, and uh, about uh, a week after returning from that trip, I became very ill and sick and uh, had one of the worst headaches of my life, uh, was 
febrile, was, uh, you know, really feeling, um, you know, ill. And I went to the infirmary on the college campus at the time and um, was diagnosed incorrectly with uh, what they call the stomach flu. And they sent me to my uh, dorm room on this Friday afternoon going into evening and told me to drink plenty of fluid, get some rest and uh, take these penicillin tablets that they gave me. Well, it turns out uh, they did give me something that potentially may have saved me <laughs> a little bit indirectly with the penicillin, but uh, certainly not enough of a, of a dose to take care of what I really had. And it turns out that uh, what I was, uh, what, what I was uh, coming down with was a very severe infection. And so late that night on Friday, uh, my fraternity brother was looking for me because uh, we were supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, coordinating a social event that evening found me in my room pretty much unresponsive and they uh, carried me literally uh, in an almost comatose state to the local hospital there. And in the emergency room, fortunately, the doctors were astute enough to realize that perhaps this wasn't the typical Friday night scene at a, at a college campus town, but this was in fact someone, you know, in me that was actually very sick and ill. And it turns out that uh, I was diagnosed at the time with uh, bacterial meningitis. Ooh, ooh. And for any of those that, uh, you know, know in your audience or have heard of, uh, you know, anyone coming down with bacterial meningitis, almost at any age, but certainly at the extremes of young and old, uh, it becomes quite a lethal condition. And, uh, and so I was literally hours away from perhaps dying. And uh, it's not uncommon every year to have a handful of, uh, you know, students, college students, just like myself, found... Uh, found uh, to succumb to this. And unfortunately, I think it was the quick action of my fraternity brothers that bring yeah. me to the hospital. And then, you know, the, the great care that was rendered to me at the, at the hospital once I arrived and their quick acting and thinking to say, hey, let's, let's take a look at what this could be and not just uh, what it, you know, you know looks like. Um, and that uh, experience uh, really engendered in me, I think, this deep appreciation and also... Um, understanding of what it feels like to be a patient, if that makes any sense. I mean, like really a patient, but, you know, not the kind of patient that goes and sees a doctor and says, Hey, I have this like, you know, sore elbow. No, like, you know, tube in every orifice, can't do anything for yourself, scared, alone, isolated. Uh, all of those things were the, um, you know, experiences that I, uh, you know, I encountered when I was uh, you know dealing with that. Uh, and I emerged from that a couple of weeks later with this, um, uh, you know, sort of renewed perspective on life, certainly as a young, yeah. you know, young man uh, with uh, a full life ahead of me, or so I thought, uh, with an acceptance letter from Johns Hopkins, or so I thought, waiting for me. <laughs> There's nothing that could take me out. And uh, it certainly, uh, you know, I, I overcame that. But the uh, just the trial and the tribulation and going through that experience and, and, uh, and, and sort of emerging from that uh, taught me quite a, quite a bit. Uh, I will say that, uh, unfortunately, I did not get accepted into Johns Hopkins. <laughs> but it's a good thing that uh, this happened to me sort of in the age of, uh, of, of snail mail and, and sort of letters still coming by postage for you to get information. It wasn't instantaneous. The Internet wasn't, you know, as robust as it is now. Okay. And so I, you know, I think the thing that kept me alive really was this expectation uh, that I was you know, destined to fulfill this purpose of being a doctor. And I think that kept me alive, uh, certainly all the way throughout, uh, you know, the time of discharge. Mm -hmm. But what it also did is when I ultimately did get to go to medical school, become a doctor and a physician, and even through my training, what it did for me is left an indelible 
perspective on what it's like to be a patient. So when I deal with my patients, when I encounter my patients, when I talk to my patients about what it's going to be like after having open heart surgery or dealing with this terrible illness or condition, I, you know, I can't help but feel this deep sense of empathy because I know what it's like to be in that gown, you know, that's not very flattering to have a tube in every orifice, to have uh, a state of being very scared and being anxious and, and also uncertain about, you know, whether or not you're going to live or die. Um, and it's something that you can't learn in a textbook. And so in, in many ways, it became a, uh, quite a blessing for me to have that experience, obviously to emerge from it even more so, but but to have that experience, have that perspective, and one that I can recount to you now, you know, decades later, like it happened yesterday, because it still is something that uh, left such an impression on me that I can't help but forget it. But I'm also reminded every time I see my patients, every time I encounter their family members, uh, it gives me a sense of what they're going through. Um, and uh, I think gives me an understanding uh, that I would never have had had I not had that experience. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you had that experience, but on the other hand, the things that happen to us inform us, and trauma can inform us too. So I understand that completely. Um, Two things come up for me when you talk about that. First of all, I'm glad that you had such good care, so you had such a great experience. I was in a car collision at one point, and I had a bilateral pneumothorax. I had that experience. I, you know, they didn't expect me to make it to the hospital in the ambulance, and I, I remember the young man, they finally got me out of the jaws of life. There were many things that happened, but the young man who was on ambulance duty, he was obviously beyond his depth. And he kept looking at me, didn't know what to do. And I said to him, just hold my hand and I promise I won't die. And he said, okay. (laughs) So these experiences do change us. And I'm so glad that you went on to that. And the second thing that came up for me is something that I think listeners might really relate to. And I've spoken to other medical professionals about this because it was missed in my case. And it can be often missed. And you're recounting the same thing, Hassan, that... Doctors tell me that when they go to medical school, they're told to, when they hear hooves, they're supposed to think horses, not zebras, right? right yeah. think, think of the most general thing that could be causing it, the most common thing, and treat that, which is what happened to you. And it wasn't any use because, well, as you said, the penicillin may have been useful, of course, because you had a level of sepsis, but... It's really important when you think that something is more than what the doctor is suggesting you're experiencing, that you push on. And when you're young, you don't know to push on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I had the same experience. Oh, you have pneumonia. Oh, you have no. I do not have pneumonia. Mm-hmm. By the fourth time, they're trying to give me a pack, trying to give me an inhaler. Those don't work. I do not have pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to push on. And actually what I did was I went to urgent care at a time I knew was quiet on a Friday evening at five o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I'm not leaving till you figure out what happens. And I found myself in the hospital. Right. Wow. So it's important for us to understand that 
doctors are generally looking at what is the most likely thing that's happening, the thing that happens to most people. And if you think something is happening to you that is not what happens to most people, and you're not hypochondriacal, (laughs) then press on through. So let's follow through on your journey. Um, What are the shifts in going to the doctor to, to between going to the doctor to stay well and going to the doctor to fix something that's unwell. Because yeah. I think that shift is an important one for us to kind of talk about. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, you're touching upon something that obviously I write about when I talk about the art of human care and, and this human care theory of mine. It really is not the uh, expose or sort of the uh, diatribe on Healthcare, because we all are very familiar with healthcare. You exactly said it. Healthcare is when you're sick and you're trying to get something to take care of this particular ailment. But uh, if you if you really think about what humans and I think most people want, it's not that they they don't want to just take care of this one issue. Most of us want to be healthy. We want to be fit. Yeah. We want to be vibrant. We want to be strong. We want to be full of energy. We want to be well and not unwell. We don't want to live with a chronic problem. And if we do have a chronic problem, we want it to be something that doesn't impact our life in a negative way. And so when you think about wellness and you think about holistic feeling good, that I would argue is largely something that you get outside of our traditional medical system. (laughs) It seems like counterintuitive, right? But it is, right? You get that from living a life full of purpose, having things to do, having good community and support, having an opportunity to exercise, to eat well. Like all of those things are not things that the hospital will give you, not a clinic will give you. It's the things that you kind of get internally or you get around your community and around those people that you care about and you work with. So human care to me is is sort of this um, embodiment of all of the elements that we want to take into account, including the taking care of something when it's wrong, uh, but really focused on getting you to be at the state of being where you can sort of live your best life and, and sort of have all the energy, all the health, all the vitality to sort of fulfill your purpose. And, uh, and that's a big difference. And now you're starting to see that shift because I think, you know, the very good medical centers, the very good practices, the very good physicians, nurses, allied health professionals are recognizing that what people really want is not a band-aid to just fix a problem, but they're really looking for this sort of holistic, all the time way of bridging the difference between not feeling well or just feeling a little bit crummy or, you know, having a, uh, having a, a little bit of an ailment to like, you know, not dealing with any of that, but just always feeling well, always feeling strong, mm-hmm. always feeling healthy. Uh, and that's, that's something that can be obtained, but it does take some work and it takes a different mindset and it takes a different kind of approach to, you know, what our traditional practice have sort of devolved to in the last, uh, you know, few years. So, and I, you know, it, funny enough, I think uh, COVID to some extent has accelerated this this real yearning and and desire to achieve just what you're saying. You know, getting after feeling really well and wellness and health. And of course, because many of us are living a lot longer lives, uh, we want those long lives and those those mm-hmm. years 
to be full of life. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> not, not, not just <laughs> longevity, you know? Right. You, uh, <laughs> you want longevity with health. And so I think people are recognizing that this is what individuals want. This is what society is really seeking. And I think they're starting to adjust what they offer in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of health and wellness. Yes. Yes. And, and for people who have toxic relationships, mm. these take a big toll. Absolutely. You know, uh, what, what, one of the things that I talked about recently with a medical doctor on the show was the work of Gabar Mate in, in uh, Vancouver. And he was, he did a study, a small study. But what he learned is that when you have chronic stress and you have um, isolation, and those two things existing together, then you, his study revealed that you have nine times the likelihood of developing breast cancer. That was what he was focused on. So when we look at the depression of the immune system as a result of constant anxiety and fear and concern and the things that the body accommodates with when that happens, when you're in a toxic relationship, and you wonder, you know, why, do, why am I, adrenal fatigued why am i so tired why do i have aches and pains why why do i feel this way and the doctor says well there's really nothing wrong with you mm. and they can't seem to pinpoint it and you are living in a toxic relationship so you're constantly depressing certain parts of you and putting yourself on alert which is very tiring for the body to deal with all this so you may have fear and anxiety and experiencing inequity so when you go to the physician you hope that someone will see you someone will hear you someone will be interested beyond the 7 minutes you know of right. <laughs> the usual appointment time. Time. So very, very deeply looking at that. So what do you endeavor to give your patients other than what other people in the medical profession may not have caught up with? And I'll give you an example. I, my doctor, who used to spend 45 minutes to an hour with me, and I had her for 13 years, she disappeared magically one day. No, I think it had something to do with the fact that she did that for all her patients. But the person who replaced was a, a fellow and I went in to acquaint myself with this new doctor. And yes, it's a time of social distancing. But I had noticed in the last three or four years that there was a total hands-off approach. Is that a thing? Is that what's happening? Is you don't touch patients anymore? Are there considerations that people are just not doing that? Or do you think that was the personalities involved? You know, I don't know. I think that could have been a unique, uh, unique uh, individual thing. I, I, I do encounter even physicians that I just I actually went to go see my <laughs> just recently, and uh, my physician. He actually uh, he's he's a bit more of a of, of an older, he's sort of old school traditionalist. So yes, he did the whole gamut of the physical exam with the, you know, breathe here and you know the hand on the shoulder, listening to the the lungs and the heart and, you know, palpating all the glands. Uh, so he was very hands-on. So I think that may have been an individual, uh, you know, uh, uh, thing that you just encountered with, uh, with that. With that. Well, I've noticed book. the trend, you know, and yeah. there's certainly but differences. It, it, yeah, it certainly would be possible. I will say that, uh, you know, in my, in my practice and my training of medical students and, and, and certainly uh, residents and sort of junior doctors and fellows, 
there is a uh, much more dependence on uh, technologies. And, and so right. these technologies tend to be a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> a bit hands off. They're great. They're, they're, augment, they're, they're, they're very good to augment, um, you know, our diagnostic capability. But I do believe that there is, and, and again, I write about this, and it's yeah. part of the art of human care, that I think there's an element of the connection uh, both um, sort of on a uh, on a on a, uh, a physical level and also on a sort of uh, non physical way that you really engender uh, the trust that's in that's that's needed for you to really uh, glean what's actually happening with the patient for them to have the space and the time to tell you what's going on and for you to be receptive and appreciate what's actually the uh, you know the real challenges the patient's experiencing at the time. So well, I, I think I believe I, that, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's really important, and I, I, I'm glad we're talking about it because I want to encourage everyone. When you're with your medical professional, it's a relationship. You are you are the expert on what's going on. You can describe what's going on in your body. They bring all this expertise and experience, and you want to feel comfortable to share. You want to feel heard. You want to feel seen, known, acknowledged. You know, accepted that your view is accurate about what's going on and how you're. Feeling. So I think those are important things as we move into talking more about your system. Uh, so important to consider. I know recently when I went to that new doctor, that younger man, uh, and he 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 actually charged my my account for a full exam. And so I challenged it and I said, How can you do an exam without touching the patient? And and so the people who run Scripps Hospital System um, were interested in what I had to say, and I did not have to pay for an exam where a doctor did not touch me. Um, because if you can't say, how do your glands feel? And I could tell you, <laughs> you actually have to touch. So this is part of human care. And the art of human care is what your book is about. And I still want everyone to make sure that you look at this absolutely gorgeous book, The Art of Human Care. So you talk in there about your acronym for the word LEARN as an acronym. And these are important things because I want you to talk about them. I'd like to talk about each one of them, but I also want to talk about them in relationship to toxic people and how these things, even in our relationships, whether they're with a medical professional or not, play out then in our relationships in general. So tell us about the acronym LEARN. Sure. So that uh, LEARN acronym uh, came about uh, as a way to uh, provide a framework, if you will, for how uh, I think uh, it's uh, for a good way to have an encounter with a patient. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of inherently knew that these all of these elements were important. Uh, I experienced it myself. You mentioned, uh, you know, my experience in the in the uh, you know in the early part of my life as an undergrad, and how this particular physician that took care of me in the ER didn't just you know look for the the, the traditional horses. <laughs> you know, he looked for the zebra because I was technically a zebra. Here I was coming in as a young college student with two fraternity brothers on a Friday night, uptunded and not responding. Easy to dismiss it as some kind of like, well, he must have been drinking or maybe perhaps did something that, you know, he took something. And my fraternity brothers insisted. He said, listen, he doesn't drink. He doesn't use anything. And it took the physician to listen to that 
And then to say, hey, maybe there is something else going on. Maybe this isn't as it seems, as obvious as it may be on on the surface. Yeah, maybe I need to do a little bit more investigation. So beginning with that, I mean, bringing it all the way forward, as I started to talk to students and I started to see the interaction between you know, my colleagues and others who did not have the kind of experience that I had, but I had the experience I had and I see them, I could see these things that were like, you know, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but there were different ways of doing things that I thought were not as effective. And so I started to think about all of the things that I knew were important for me when I was a patient and all of the things that are important for me when I developed rapport with my patients. And so what I came up with is this sort of framework and it just neatly fit into, and I like to make uh, mnemonics up because I'm not that smart. Me so too. It's, Me it's too. easy to remember things <laughs> that way. And so I said to myself, what if I really thought about what I want to do? And what I want to do is I want to learn about my patient, you know, because that's the first step to understanding them is to learn about them. And, and then I said, all right, let's take it a, a step further, a little bit deeper. What does that learn mean? And for me, the learn is, is a way of, of, of sort of characterizing these principles. The first one is really important. And I think it's absolutely important in anything that has to do with a toxic relationship because it's the quintessential, most important aspect of communication, which is listen. So that first L stands for listen. Now, many people will say, oh, I'm a great listener. I listen all the time. And I I usually say, I don't think so, because I think I'm a good listener and I know I can always improve. And it turns out that most people don't listen very well. If you just have just a casual conversation with someone, you almost invariably will interrupt someone before they get to tell their story. Now, we've done studies in, in the healthcare, and we find that on average, believe it or not, Roberta, on average, bless you, <laughs> on average, a patient will be interrupted by a healthcare provider. This could be the nurse, the doctor, between the first 16 to 21 seconds Ooh. of the conversation. Can you imagine? So you have this, you know, this, this wait, you've waited weeks, maybe months to see this physician or the, 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 you know, the encounter and, and you're ready to tell your story. You've been thinking about it. You're anxious. You're nervous. You have all these questions. And you want to get it all in. You want to get it all in. And you start to talk. And they'll say, Roberta, wait a minute. But you just said, and now you've lost your train of thought. It's gone somewhere else. You go down a rabbit hole. And like you said, your 17 minutes doesn't last very long. And now your 17 minutes are done. And at the end, you probably are thinking to yourself, I didn't get to tell him what was really wrong with me or how what was really wrong with me. And now you've left that encounter. And what we do on our side is we'll order more tests because we didn't get to the bottom of the answer. <laughs> we'll exactly. say, hey, you need to go see this other doctor because I don't know if I could figure out what's going on with you. So, exactly. so the very first one is very important. So that's why I spend a lot of time on that. So learn is the, the mnemonic, but the first L is listen. The right. E is empathize. With All right, people. before we move on, let's stick mm-hmm. with this this parallel conversation here. Sure. Because we're talking about this application to medical professionals. But mm-hmm. when you're in a toxic relationship, the toxic person, the hijackal that I talk about, mm-hmm. um, I trademarked that term, Hassan, mm-hmm. because 
I wanted people to have a non-clinical term to talk about the patterns, traits, cycles, and behaviors of these people. So when you were the hijackal, and the definition of that is a hijackal is a person who hijacks a relationship for their own purposes and mm-hmm. then relentlessly scavenges it for power, status, and control. So when you're with a hijackal, they're not interested in you. They don't want to listen. And so they're not going to listen. They may look generally in your direction Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of see where the sound is coming from. So it's important for us to understand that listening is an engagement of the brain as well as the ears and preferably with the eyes attached. Absolutely. So that your patient is the focus of your attention in the present moment, that you can bring yourself fully to that moment with that person because it's precious to them, as you say. They've been waiting for it. They want to be heard. They've practiced all the things that they want to get into the situation. And if you don't come with that presence because you've got three other rooms waiting and you've got four telephone calls and all, and you can't bring yourself to that moment, I think that that is exactly what you're trying to bring attention to with your human care theory is that you need to be fully there in order to listen, right? Yeah. And it, and it actually pays dividends. You know, I'll have things. Oh, I can't, I don't have the time to listen. Well, I argue you don't have the time not, not to, to listen. listen. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't listen, you're going to do things that are going to be absolutely ineffective, inefficient, and cost everyone more time, more money, more resources, and potentially more harm. So listening is very important. And if you just give the space, you'll actually discover what the real problem is. And you actually will have the information you need to apply the right therapy to the issue and address it. So imagine imagine that listening is a time saver. Imagine that. It is. It's a, it is a time saver. It's, it's, it's almost like something that I practice as well, which is meditation. Meditation tends to be a very good time saver. People, I don't have the time to meditate. It takes too long. And I argue, and those that are very avid meditators will tell you, if I meditate, the longer I meditate, the more time I have in my day, the more efficient I am. So without going down that tangent, I will just say listening is the first step. The E is for empathize. And empathy is very important. Now, it's, again, something that you can't necessarily learn in a textbook. You can read about it. You can know what the definition is. Uh, And I've been blessed, I said, by my experience, because I think it has given me a perspective that I think gives me, I would hope, a little bit more empathy when it comes to dealing with and understanding what patients are going through. The A is for affinitize. Now, that's a bit of a word that, that does exist in real life, but it has in, in its root affinity. And okay, affinity- just a second. We've okay. got to go one by one here. Okay, okay. <laughs> so <clears throat> the whole idea of empathy is not something you're going to find in a toxic person because that means they need the ability and the willingness to lean into you. And so they need to be curious. They need to be not focused on self. They need to be focused on you. They need to want to hear you and to connect with you at deeper levels. So I just want to keep this parallelism going for these first few because I have been to toxic physicians Mm -hmm. and you can just tell. And, you know, there's really sad things that you can learn from Dr. Google. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One of them is if you ever do a search on careers of psychopaths, unfortunately, um, surgeons come on that list. And people can depersonalize you in the medical profession. You can become someone who is not a real person. You're a case. You right. are a, a collective collective of symptoms, a need for a, a package of relief. And there's a dismissal factor in that because the empathy is not there. The human factor is not there. The human care is not there. And we can experience that in a toxic relationship as well that you you may appeal to their cognitive development, but you haven't appealed to their affect. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really difficult. So this happens in the medical profession, obviously, because Dr. Tete is talking about it. It happens in toxic relationships where you just don't feel like the person wants to lean in and know what it feels like to be in your shoes. So now let's go on to the A. Sure. So the A, again, I think you're going to find a parallel here as well. So we talked about listening. We talked about empathy. The A in the learn and wanting to learn about the patient is to affinitize. Affinitize, which again is, is you know, a word you may not readily see in the, in the, in the, uh, in the dictionary, but it, it does have its root with affinity. And what that means is, you know, bringing things together, you know, the affinity. I have an affinity for chocolate. I love chocolate, you know? So I think about now that I've listened to a patient and now that I've empathized with the patient and I'm starting to sort of formulate what my plan is for the patient, I need to be able to affinitize a therapy. In other words, bring something to the patient that they're going to like, and they're going to embrace. If, (laughs) if I know this person starts out by telling me, you know what? I absolutely hate pills. I will never take a pill because I just had a traumatic experience when I had, and they go on and on. And then they start to tell me about their problem. If I'm not listening, number one, if I'm not empathetic, number two, and, and worse, if I don't affinitize my therapy and I say, Hey, I'm going to give you a cocktail of four pills to take. That's <laughs> and they're really big too. <laughs> they're really big. That's going to go right out the window, right? Yeah. So as I'm listening, as I'm empathizing, now I start to formulate a plan and I'm affinitizing. I'm going to say to myself, this person that doesn't like pills, I'm going to make sure I find a syrup or a serum or some other way. Maybe there's a patch they could wear, whatever it is that may be the drug that I need to help them get better, I may start to affinitize it. Or it may not be a drug or may not be a pill. Maybe it's a behavioral change. I start to ask them, what is it that they like to do? Do you like exercise? And they're like, I can't stand running. How about walking? You know, so it's these kinds of things. So the A is affinitize. And affinitize is really, broadly speaking, finding out what therapy is going to work best with that particular individual. It's it's the essence of personalizing the treatment and the care to the individual. And you're only going to be able to do that if you've done the first two steps well. You had to listen and you would have to have empathy. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I hear in that, Hassan, is that you 
are listening for what matters most to the patient. Uh, And that's what you're not going to find in a toxic relationship. They only care about what matters to them. They don't care about what matters to you. So they're not listening to you. They don't empathize. They're very short on empathy. And then they're not really interested in what matters to you because it might not match what matters to them. And of course, they come first. Mm -hmm. So this becomes very important. And then if you happen to be in a situation where you go to a medical professional who is a little bit toxic, we've got an even worse situation. So I hope you do super well in educating the entire medical community to lean into these things and to learn what matters most to to the patient. Because certainly in my therapeutic world and in my practice, I have to find the ways in. Mm -hmm. If I am dealing with somebody's greatest fears and I approach that in a clumsy way, Mm -hmm. it really will not help. It will delay the possibility of healing. Mm -hmm. And I think that happens in your field too. Would you agree? Absolutely, yes. It will undermine the very thing that you're trying to do and the very thing that the person is seeking, which is your help and assistance. But if you don't do those things and don't capture exactly what the essence of their problems are in an effective way, then yes, you'll undermine the very thing that they're seeking, which is help. <laughs> so. Exactly, yes. And, and, and developing trust that you can help them. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so the ongoing relationship has more value. So carry on, what's the R? Yes, so the R, so we talked about listening, empathize. A is the affinitize. The R is something that will resonate with people. It's repeat. (laughs) And it's simply just repeat because you're in that moment. Again, I take myself to me being in that bed with that, with with the the gown and and there's binging and bonging and there's all this noise (laughs) and there's so much stuff I don't understand. And someone says something and you're like, wait, what did they say? I didn't get it. Or you're in that office space and you've just been waiting in the waiting room for hours. Or now with telemedicine, you've got everything zoomed up and you're ready to go. (laughs) And and they say it and then, you know, boom, bang, bang. And they're out of there. You're like, wait a minute, what did you say? So I repeat. And repeat is to help them understand what it is that you are attempting to provide in terms of the care and the plan. And so I like to do this, um, you know, repeat uh, both uh, sort of as a two-way conversation. It's really an extension of the communication. And I like when family members are around because then I can have yeah. the family member repeat too. So what did you understand that I said? What, what are you taking from what I said? And explain it in your words. What, what, one, what do you think my assessment is? What did you hear me tell you about your problems? And then two, you know, what did you understand I was telling or suggesting um, you were suggesting uh, as far as your treatment plan? And it's fascinating to, to get to get these, uh, you know, sort of responses back. And sometimes I'll I'll uh, I'll repeat my message using a prop. So I have this plastic card in my uh, office. So, you know, it's really cool because you can take it apart and, you know, hey, you're going to have valve surgery. We're going to replace this valve. And then, right. you know, I've said it already verbally, but now I'm showing it with a model and it's re- it's reinforcing the understanding. And because some people are, are visual learners, some people are verbal learners, some people are tactile learners, and sometimes they'll even want to touch it or play with it. Like, wow, this is my heart. Well, it's a plastic heart, but yes, you get the idea. So repeating is very important. And I like to have it be a bimodal repeating. So them repeating, 
what they heard and understood to me and me repeating what I told them and perhaps in a different way so that the message is really received. So that framework, again, is learn, it's listen, we're empathizing, we're affinitizing the, uh, the treatment and the plan. And now, of course, we're repeating. And you know what's going to happen in toxic relationships. They didn't listen in the first place. They don't have any empathy. They have no ability to affinitize or willingness to affinitize. So you want to talk about it again? Are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) So we're not going to get any of that repeat things going on. So we might as well move on to the end. (laughs) Yes. And so the end is a very important and powerful thing to also appreciate. And it really is the culmination and sort of the anchor of the, of, of, of the entire framework. And the N is for know the patience now. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is know the patience now, right? Each one of us has a myriad of problems, a myriad of things going on. And when we're seeing that doctor, that allied health professional, the behavioral health professional, the nurse, Our now is really why we're there, right? But sometimes we cannot appreciate that as a healthcare provider if we don't give all of those elements time and space to sort of unravel. Like, did we listen? If we didn't listen, if we didn't empathize, if we didn't affinitize, and we certainly didn't repeat, by the time we get to the end, we would have lost track of it. We would have heard one thing and we would be addressing something that is actually not the patient's now. And what I mean by that is, you know, sort of concretely is many patients come to us seeking help and they have a specific ask or request or a thing that they want to be addressed. But if we don't give the time and the space to uncover that or to understand and appreciate that, we will address not what their now is, not the reason that they're here. We may be treating something else. Yes, Mr. Smith may have a history of diabetes, and he told me that he has a history of diabetes, and that's all I heard, and I didn't hear anything else. (laughs) And so when he gets to the end of our visit, I'm going to treat him for diabetes, when in fact, he probably said, hey, doc, I'm feeling a little depressed. But I didn't give him time and space to say any of that stuff or for it to come out. And so I'm not addressing his now. I didn't know his now because I didn't give him the time to appreciate him telling me what his now is. So I didn't know what his now is. I'm treating his past. I'm treating his future. I'm treating something else. And it turns out, and this is very well documented, that many office visits, particularly in doctor's offices, are for conditions that are of a behavioral health, anxiety, or depression reason, not necessarily for a chronic condition that they may already be labeled with. And what we do in our profession, especially in the high pace sort of throughput of sort of, you know, conveyor belt medicine is we'll just treat them for whatever their problem is because we don't have the time or we don't perceive we have the time and then, you know, keep them moving. And uh, they may not have ever got what they really wanted because we didn't give them the space to get to the now of why they were there. (laughs) Yeah. So that sort of says that we didn't get to the presenting problem. Correct. Right. (laughs) Exactly. We weren't in the present and we didn't get to the today's presenting problem. Right. Right. And it's, it's like dysfunctional conversations, Hassan, when Mm -hmm. someone listens to the first half of a sentence and then is formulating their answer and not listening to the second the half. Right. 
And when that happens, and it happens a lot in toxic relationships, it happens in relationships where I just want this to go away. Let me let me come up with a fix. And we don't lean in and we don't listen. So I, I really get that because someone will give you a little background and then you get hooked in the background and you don't get with the present time. So I think that these things relate directly to this. And um, I just want to tell everybody, if you just joined us, I'm talking to Dr. Hassan Tete. You can find him at drtete.com. That's spelling out Dr. T-E-T-T-E-H dot com. And you can find him and you can find his wonderful book. And I I have um, made a valiant attempt to get it on. Oh, there we go. Better now. Um, the Art of Human Care. And if you're enjoying this, you really enjoy the book. It's beautifully illustrated color inside. And the illustrations are drawn by his daughter, which is really, really special. So I hope that you'll have a look at that because I want you to internalize what he's talking about. Because when you go to the next visit that you have with a medical professional, maybe you could encourage them to listen to you. Maybe you could encourage them to be empathetic. You know, maybe your part in it could be, yeah, this is the relationship I want with my medical professional. And then you will build trust in that relationship. So I just want to ask you one question that seemingly I'm related to your medical career, but certainly related to the field of toxic relationships. And you had a, a background growing up in New York City as an, Africa, an African-American man. Did that shape you in any way to understand the toxic relationship? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. We probably don't have enough time <laughs> for me to recount uh, all the different levels of ways that I could answer that type of question. But from a toxic relationship standpoint, oh, where do I start? So I, you know, just for your audience, yes, in fact, I am from a, a small village town in New York called Brooklyn. You know, it, it is a very small <laughs> village town, happens to have a lot of people in Brooklyn. But I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, you know, I like to call it the Brooklyn of my day, which was in the 80s and 90s, you know, I, I and during that time, you know, Brooklyn and uh, most of New York City was it was not the gentrified sort of idyllic place that uh, some people think of when they think of Brooklyn yeah. now. Of course, COVID-19 has has certainly impacted all cities, and New York is not not an exception. So my my growing up in New York City was full of what I would call toxic relationships. In fact, there was one around every corner. (laughs) (laughs) Just waiting to happen. (laughs) There were rival people from different neighborhoods that, you know, of course, were perceived uh, by anybody else as toxic, you know, rival high schools, you know, riding the subway trains and, you know, all kinds of toxic characters uh, at any corner. Uh, It was a pretty uh, intense place to grow up. So in terms of shaping my, you know, uh, character and, and like you said, my, my perspective, absolutely. I, I think I grew up in a, in this constant state of, of, of uh, stress. You know, I'm, I'm kind of fond of, of, of recounting this one experience. Uh, if, if any of, um, you know, your listeners, uh, have a very, had even a, a brief familiarity with the subway system in New York, especially during that time of the eighties and nineties, you know, that it was a quite a dangerous place. And uh, there was a one particular subway station in Brooklyn, New York, uh, called Broadway Junction. It's where a bunch of different trains sort of all come together. And as a young high school student, that was one of the most dangerous places to sort of transit as you were (laughs) changing from place to place. 
And I remember joking with one of my childhood friends, actually, when I returned from Afghanistan. So I had deployed to Afghanistan, a very bad neighborhood there had been, you know, having, you know, <laughs> rockets flown over us and gunshot and taking care of wounded, uh, ill and wounded, uh, Ill, Ill and ill, injured and wounded uh, Marines uh, and coming back and saying to my friend, you know what? That was nothing compared to Broadway Junction. I mean, <laughs> it was a lot worse. So, you know, in terms of being in a toxic environment, that that was uh, definitely uh, one of those experiences during that time of growing up. But there were others, and I think this is probably a deeper way of getting to your question and your and, and your um you know your your inquiry about how was it growing up as an African American. Uh, well, it, on many levels, it was very challenging. You know, certainly. Even in school, I, you know, I, I, I told my teachers and my guidance counselors and college counselors that I wanted to be a doctor. And there was, you know, this, you know, sort of, um, you know, look on their faces of like, well, that's impossible. You can't do that. <laughs> who I mean, do you think you are? Who do you, who do you think you are? Do you know that the children in this neighborhood don't even finish high school and yet you're trying to become a doctor? And I remember having this one conversation with one of the, you know, middle school deans at the time. And uh, he, he and I and my dad uh, had to come to the school to sort of reconcile uh, what I regarded as a pleasant problem. They didn't know what math class to put me in because I had transferred from another school and I was on a different level and they couldn't accommodate me. And and then as you, sort of as the conversation came to an end and we didn't really have a great resolution, he says, well, by the way, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, um, I want to be uh, an anesthesiologist at the time. That's what I wanted to be. And I was really you know, proud of the fact that I could pronounce anesthesiologist at this time. So I was, uh, I said it with such enthusiasm and alacrity that he probably was just uh, shocked that, you know, this kid, this African-American kid said that. And, and, and of course, I don't need to tell you, he wasn't an African-American individual, but uh, he looked at me and he just, you know, he frowned and, you know, you could see the, the eyebrow furrow. And he said, you want to be a what? An anesthesiologist? He said, do you know what you have to do to become an anesthesiologist? And Roberta, I had no clue what I needed to do to become an anesthesiologist <laughs> at the time. He said, you need to finish high school. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I was just in middle school. He said, then you have to go to four years of college. Oh, okay. Then you have to go to four years of medical school. Then you have to do something called a residency. That's at least four to five years. Are you sure that's what you want to do? So needless to say, this was not a pleasant conversation. Right? <laughs> it was not encouraging at all. But in that toxic exchange and in that discouraging sort of tone that he bestowed upon me, what I found in that was actual wisdom. Because up until that point, Roberta, I had no idea what it took to become a doctor let alone an anesthesiologist. And in his discouraging tone and in his means to be toxic and sort of tell me, well, it's not possible and it's impossible, he actually outlined for me what I believed at the time was my blueprint. And what I took away from that conversation was, well, this guy is not here to support me. He doesn't really care much about me. But what he inadvertently did was give me the instructions for what I needed to do in terms of charting my next few years to actually get to the goal that I wanted to have. And so it turned out to be something of a blessing. But at the time, it was indeed a very toxic experience. Yes, <laughs> I can... one of many stories I could tell you. But that that one in particular was one that, uh, you know, is, is, is one that I've always remembered and I've recounted on several occasions. 
Well, yes, that and that is a toxic experience. And the incredulity, like how dare you say that to a yeah, young person? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I grew up a lot earlier than than you did. Um, but being a woman, when I said I wanted to go to medical school, and I said that what from the time I was twelve, mm-hmm. like women don't go to medical school. What do you mean? You know, that's not a profession for women. Mm-hmm. And of course it was. And then they say, well, what do you want to do? And I wanted to be a pediatrician. Uh, well, that's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> and so I understand that there there was discrimination against women. There are discriminate People make up their mind in certain ways. Collectives make up their mind. Cultures make up their mind. Towns make up their mind. I come from a pretty blue-collar town, a very small town when I was born. A woman becoming a doctor? Are you kidding? Mm. You know, similar experience. So I truly understand how that hit you. And I'm so delighted that you kind of turned that into something positive as a blueprint for what you could do. I think we could talk for forever. There's so many things to talk about. But I want to sum up something that you've taken from all this experience by using a quote from the cover of your book, The Inside Front Flap. And this is what Dr. Hassan Tete wrote. With health, wisdom reveals itself. Art becomes manifest. We have strength to fight life's challenges. Our wealth becomes useful. We may apply our intelligence and positively change the world for generations. And that is inspiration. So your whole journey not only helps so many people in so many ways, but is inspiration to millions. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure, a delight, and a true honor to be able to share these uh, moments with you and your audience. Thank you. My guest today has been Dr. Hassan Tete. Find him at drtete.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-T-E-T-T-E-H.com. He has a gift for you that's in the show notes below. His gift is a free chapter from Success Strategies, Life-Saving Success Strategies in the Art of Human Care. So that's available for you. Just go to the show notes and enjoy that. And until we're together again, remember... Treat yourself well. Take very good care of you because you matter. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash save your sanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.